0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church.
1: My name is Don and I'm a dad. It's therefore my responsibility to embarrass my children as soon as I get a microphone. This last week it was Andrea had a birthday and her husband Yvonne had a birthday a couple weeks ago. So please just turn around, acknowledge that they had a birthday and then I can get on to what I have to say. We are blessed to have such wonderful worship music here. And I want to draw your ears, your heart, to the words of a song. It's a Steve Green song. And I'm going to ask you to finish the phrase as I say it out. And may all who come behind us find us. Hmm, you know that one. And may all who come behind us find us What a challenge that is. So my responsibility as a dad goes beyond embarrassment. My responsibility as a dad is that my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren will find me faithful. What a responsibility. I have the honor and privilege as we look at this church of seeing my grandfather and grandmother, my other grandfather and other grandmother, my father and my mother were all here at the beginning of this church and invested in the the church of Grand Park Baptist, which is now White Ridge. Presently, that puts me as a third generation and Andrea and Yvonne as a fourth generation that has the privilege of supporting this church so that others will find us faithful. There are people in the room here, there are three generations sitting here in the room where there's a grandparent, a parent, and a child. What an honor and a privilege to challenge ourselves to be found faithful. It sounds so simple. What what, what does that mean in terms of challenging yourself, modeling to those around you that you will be faithful? As we enter this building program and the opportunity of commitment, I encourage you to share your participation or that even that you are involved with your children Simply so that they know what your legacy is. So that they know what's in your heart and what you care about. Because sometimes it's easy for them to say, Oh, I see you like this car or this attribute or this th- possession. But what's really in your heart that you say is important in a lasting legacy? So as you pray for your own level of commitment to the church program as, w- as we look forward it's a sacrificial time of, of change and investment in our future but it isn't the future for us it isn't so I have a different church to go to this is so the next generation has a place to go it isn't about me it isn't about you it's about th- the next group of people So repeat after me, and may all who come behind us find us faithful.
0: Amen. Thank you, Don, for sharing. And I uh, just uh, borrowed from George Nicol a couple of weeks ago the a book about the history of the North American Baptists. I think it's called "They Came from East and West." I think that's what it's called. And uh, interesting to see the generations that are indeed following on with God and. And are be are part of this church family, and and our mother church McDermott, and so on. So praise God. I was very encouraged to hear this morning that um, that so far with the pledges that have been handed in, that we are halfway, uh, over halfway to the three million, and and bless God for that. And we we just trust that God will will bring in the remainder in the coming week. And so uh, I'd be encouraged to uh, be. Take part in that as God leads you and, and uh, be, be part of what God's doing among us. Um, you know, I was, I was a little bit unnerved by uh, John's comments. Uh, it doesn't uh, appear well optically if, if a whole bunch of money pledged is pledged and then two pastors saying, I'll fly away. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
2: I'm
0: not sure if that, that's a good message, you know. <laughs> Where are we going, Kevin? <laughs> I wanted to mention one other thing. Um, some of you know more about this than I do about the, the clown issue in the news lately, okay? Put up your hand if you've heard something about clowns. Okay, good. So I'm talking to the, the right crowd here. So, so I want you to know, you parents particularly, if you're kind of worried about coming next Saturday to the main event... And su- submitting your children to Dill the clown, you know, he's, he's not like that, you know. He, uh, in fact, he's Alf Bell's grandson. Uh, he's a pastor, and uh, <laughs> and uh, we've actually had a conversation with him, and he's still debating whether or not he's going to put his makeup on or dress up or not. He's going to show up, and he's going to be uh, having a good time with our kids. But, uh, you know, depending on the mood and everything, he may not uh, come fully, fully dressed in clown attire. So anyway, I just wanted to tell you that. We have heard a few people say, well, I don't know if I want to send my kids if it's a clown there because uh, clowns are getting a bad rap. And, and the legitimate clowns I've heard are very upset about some of this stuff, obviously, this entering their turf. So enough clowning around. Um. <laughs> Sorry, how do I turn... This around. <laughs> anyway, we are we are enjoying a, a series of, of sermons now in, in 1 Kings. And um, today we look at the the third Sunday in a row, we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. We've already talked about how this word glory uh, dominated the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, the Solomon's Temple. Last week we talked about the prayer of Solomon and and just how it could be a pattern for us in our praying. I like especially the one of the three points was that, that Solomon prayed up the promises of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the promises of God this morning. And if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, the, the interesting thing that occurs in this passage is that as, as he finishes praying in verse 53 of 1 Kings 8, um, he turns and and he turns and blesses the people. And I'd like to read this section that follows the uh, prayer of Solomon and uh, begin in verse 54. So if you're able to stand with me, could you stand now and listen to God's word? 1 Kings 8, beginning in verse 54. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from, the, from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. And he stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice. And he said, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us or forsake us. May He turn our hearts toward Him to walk in His ways, to keep the commands and decrees and regulations He gave our fathers. May these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that He may uphold the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by His decrees, And obey his commands at this time, as at this time. And then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. And on that same day, the king consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord, And there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of fellowship offerings because the bronze altar before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the fellowship offerings. And so Solomon observed the festival at that time, all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Libo Hamath to the wadi of Egypt. They celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days and seven days more, 14 days in all. And on the following day he sent the people away. They blessed the king, and they went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. Amen. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. In simple terms, there are two parts to this scripture that I just read. There is the first part, which is the heart preparation of Israel, And then there is the second part, which was the life consecration or dedication of Israel. There is the first part of heart preparation, invisible, not seen. And then the second part, very visible and tangible, and that is the the life consecration. You know, that's the way God works in every one of our lives. If you, you don't, maybe you haven't identified it this way, but your own spiritual journey to date, right now, has been all about those two things happening. The very invisible from the outside work of God at work in your heart to do some kind of preparation for that next step of commitment and growth in your spiritual life. And then that very visible consecrating when you you do something outwardly, you decide something, you take a step forward and others can see that, yeah, this guy, this girl is getting more serious with God. There's There's a consecrating of your life. That's the way the Lord works with souls. And um, let's take a look at those two aspects today in this scripture in 1 Kings chapter 8. In verses 54 to 61, it might sound like prayer, but it is not prayer, clearly. From verse 54, we see it says, when Solomon had finished these prayers. So Solomon is done praying And then in verse 55 it says he stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice. Now I want you to know this is the distinction. Solomon turns from the vertical communication where he's communing with God himself in prayer and he turns and he blesses the people of Israel. He goes from vertical communication to horizontal communication. And and we see that in the scripture, beginning in verse 57, and the key English word that is found in the text that identifies that he's going from this to this is the way he talks. sounds like prayer a little bit, but the key English word is the word may. You'll count it several times in these scriptures. So take a look at it. It's in the green insert in your bulletin. You can see that I've identified the various times that this word is used, he says in verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us. He's not talking to God. He's talking to each other, or you, uh, Israel, and, and he's saying, may God be with us. Verse 57, may he never leave us nor forsake us. You see, he's prayed up the promises of God. Now he's talking out the promises of God. He's reminding Israel of the promises of God. Verse 58, may he turn our hearts toward him. Verse 59, may our prayer be near to him day and night. May he uphold the cause of his people. May all the peoples of the earth know that the Lord is God. May our hearts be fully committed to him. Over and over again in this scripture, he is talking the promises of God out to his people. And he's reminding people, what does that sound like in our terms What would it sound like for you in your realm of friends, Christian fellowship, in a family that's Christian, in in friendships that are Christian? What does it sound like? Well, it sounds something like this. When you're in a dark place and you feel that God is not even listening to you, and it's been days since you've ever felt the presence of God or prayed to him, you need someone to come alongside of you and pronounce something of the promises of God and bless you, just like Solomon blessed Israel here. You need them to come and you need them to say, may the Lord God be with you in this dry season. And may you experience the tangible presence of God. Now, you're not praying. You might even want to put your hand on them, but you're saying, may God show himself to you. We don't talk that way enough to people. In biblical times, the blessing was a real thing. We don't talk that way enough to people. Blessing each other as God has blessed us. And when you're going through... Times of, of difficulty. Your heart feels so cold. You question whether you're a child of God. You fall into sin easily. You have no, hardly any affection on your heart for God and holy things. And you think, what am I going to do? You need someone to come alongside of you. A brother, a sister in Christ. And they need to say, may God, may God turn your heart toward him. You're not praying. You're just pronouncing blessing. May God Touch your life. May He turn your heart toward Him, to seek Him. And when you're going through a difficult time and and you feel that all circumstance is against you and life is raw and hard and bitter, you need someone to come along and say, may God uphold your cause. And when you're going through deep, deep concern, aching heart over some loved one that's going through awful things, and they maybe don't know the Lord, you need someone to come alongside you and say, may God remind you of the global vision he has for all the peoples of this earth, including, including that, that loved one in your life. May God give you a heart that is full of his love to realize he loves that person more than you love them. See, that's just speaking, blessing. We're called to do it. In 1 Peter 3, 9, it says, do not repay evil for evil, but instead with blessing, because to this you were called. You were called to bless so that you may inherit a blessing. So that's the first thing I want to talk about is this idea of blessing, just like like Solomon did. Jesus did it in the Beatitudes, didn't he? Remember? Blessed are you. He's not praying. He's talking to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you. And then he would add the promise of God. Blessed are you, when you hunger after God, you're going to be filled. Take that as a promise. If you, if you are hungering after God, you might feel like you, you, there's so many other warring affections on your heart. But if you've got a little bit of hunger in there for God, you, th- you count on that. You take the promise of God and you hang on to it. Because he said you're going to be filled. Blessed are you, if you thirst after righteousness, you will be satisfied. You see, Jesus did it in the Beatitudes. He, he blessed the people and he reminded them of the promises of God. You need to do that this week. You need someone to do that to you this week. We need to talk less about the, the mundane, superficial things that everybody else in Canada talks about all week long. And we need to buy up the moments that we have on the phone, on email on texting, on on one-on-one, one-on-one coffee times. We need to buy up those moments to just bless each other, remind each other of the promises of God. And so that's the, the first part of this. You know, I, I want to just share a little story with you. I read this past week about uh, in the 5th century A.D., this is 410, 20, 30, in that area, she lived, a woman by the name of Anicia Faltonia Prova. That's Italian. And she lived in Rome, and she had to flee from Rome because Rome was being sacked in 410. And she had the good fortune, as she fled to Africa, she had the good fortune of meeting up with none other than the renowned theologian, St. Augustine. And as she had this, she's a noble woman, she had wealth and so on, and she met up with St. Augustine, and she she asked him one thing. She, She asked him about prayer. And St. Augustine answered her question, but then he felt he needed to follow up, so he wrote her a letter. This letter was collected later and published. It's a very short letter, and it teaches on prayer. In fact, it's of all the uh, works of St. Augustine, that's the only wholly dedicated work on prayer. And the first principle that St. Augustine shares with this woman, Anicia Proba, has to do not with the mechanics of prayer, of how you should pray or what you should pray, but he rather says you must become a particular kind of person if you're going to pray. Now, this, this, has taken, this has taken the discussion on prayer in a whole different direction. You need to become a certain kind of person. That's the way Augustine started. And he said this. He said, you must account yourself desolate in this world, however great the prosperity of your lot may be, The scales must have fallen from your eyes and you must see clearly that no matter how great your earthly circumstances become, they can never bring you the lasting peace that are found in Christ. Unless you have that clearly in view, your prayers will go wrong, he says. He goes on to talk about the fact that he calls them our heart loves. He says that we must see that our heart loves are disordered. And he says that the the things that ought to be third or fourth in your heart loves are up in, in number one. And God, who should reign supremely, is down on the list somewhere below other things and affections. And he says as long as that is the disorderedness of our hearts, We will, he doesn't just say not pray right. He actually says that prayer can even be a hindrance. He says, because you will simply be worrying in God's direction. I like that term. You will simply be worrying in God's direction. That's not prayer. Prayer is this response to the knowledge of God, as we talked about last week when we quoted Timothy Keller. Prayer is this communication with God that God started the conversation, he shared knowledge of himself, you respond to God, but worrying in the presence of God and toward God, that's not prayer. That's, that's just mistrust. That's not strengthening of faith, that's debilitating of faith. And so he then quotes this incredible passage in Proverbs 30, uh, verse 7 to 9, and, and uh St. Augustine quotes this. He says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What is that proverb all about? It's all about guarding his heart. The person that wrote that proverb is simply saying, God, I don't, I don't trust myself. I'm not sure if I can handle wealth. I'm not sure if I could handle poverty. God, I, I, I'm doing a heart check, God. Keep me, help me, you know? Unless you think that we've wandered way off the text in 1 Kings 8, that's what the first part of this portion of Scripture I read is all about. It's all about heart. It's all about the preparation of the heart, for the consecration of the people in the work of building the temple. And in this matter, notice verse 61 of 1 Kings 8. And that's why Solomon says it to the people. He says, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God. That's key. Your heart's got to be fully committed to the Lord our God. So let's look then at, at uh, the second part of the, of the scripture. And that is the actual dedication or the consecration of the temple. And in verses 62 and 63, we read about the many thousands of animals that were slaughtered and sacrificed in the dedication of the temple. Now, can you just step back uh, for a moment with me, and I want you to go back in time to Numbers, where we read about the dedication of the tabernacle. Remember that. The tabernacle was the tent of meeting this temporary structure that God's presence came and dwelt among his, his, the people of. And in that occasion, in Numbers, in chapter 7 of Numbers, verse 88, we read about the number of animals sacrificed at the dedication of the tabernacle. You're going to be a little surprised. It doesn't have thousands in mind, hardly even hundreds, it says that in that scripture, there were 24 oxen, there were 60 rams, 60 male goats, and 60 male lambs. Big difference compared to the thousands of animals that are, that are being slaughtered in sacrifice to the living God in the dedication of the temple. Why is that? Well, in Numbers, the Israelite people were a poor, nomadic people living in the wilderness, in the desert. And now, in Solomon's time, he's had the whole generation of David in conquering the land, in being in the promised land, in conquering enemies, in in having all the gold and things that come from other nations. And he is now, they are now a wealthy people. And God is like any farmer, that when a farmer sows bountifully... They want to go back to the fields later on and they want to reap bountifully, right? And God is like any farmer. He has sown bountifully to Solomon and David. They have riches. They have peace around them with other nations. And now God comes and says, build me a house. And, and now it's, it's this pouring out because God wants to see the faith response of his people. Now, I believe that the reason for the, the the many animals that are being sacrificed is, is beyond that. I think that when we look at this huge number of animals being sacrificed, so, so huge that the bronze altar where normally the priests would sacrifice a ram or a goat or whatever, it wasn't big enough. And so they actually had to go outside that area and consecrate the whole courtyard so that they could keep up to the, the many animals the Israelites were coming from far and wide. And they were bringing their lamb, one per family. And they were bringing these sheep and these goats and these oxen. And this whole tribe of priests was just barely keeping up. And and in the middle of it all, Solomon's huge offering as well. Thousands of animals. Why is that? Why this? Number one, it it shows us how seriously God takes sin. For a holy God to dwell among a sinful people, there was a blood sacrifice. Some substitution had to take place. For every sinner that would come into the presence of God. And so we see, number one, that the thousands of animals represented the thousands of Israelites that were coming into the holy presence of God. Secondly, we see that this very matter was all, every animal, every dove, every goat, every ram, every lamb, every one of these bloodsheds were pointing forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ who would take away the sin of the world. And so we, we have this incredible, it's a bloody, it's a gory scene. And we, from outside eyes looking at the text, from, from worldly thinking looking at the you think, oh, this is barbaric, this is, this is primitive. But friends, it has to be seen in the light of the holiness of God and, and, and what it means to fellowship, to be in communion with a holy God. And so we see this scripture and we see what it was that God was doing. What does this mean for us? Let's fast forward now to to our day and age. You and I, in the 21st century, trying to to understand what does God require of us? What does Jesus Christ mean for us? There's an author by the name of Ed Clowney that has written about the, the fact that there are two ways to understand and read this book, the Bible. There are two ways to read it. You can read it, and you can see it as being all about us. Or you can read it, and you can see it as being all about Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible, and you think it is mostly about you and about us, then you will read it as a moralistic exhortation to do better, and try harder, and sacrifice more, and work at it, and smarten up kind of thing. Just like most of the books' sacred writings of all religions around the world, a moralistic exhortation for humans to be better, try harder, bring more. God requires this. Now you can read the Bible that way, and I can tell you it will not bless you. Or you can read the Bible as being mostly and always about Jesus Christ. And when the Bible is read and it's about Jesus Christ, it it is an incredible thing because I come as a pauper, a beggar, a poverty-stricken sinner, and I come with nothing to contribute. I come recognizing, like Paul says in Romans 7, that there lives in me no good thing, that even my righteousness is like filthy rags, the good things that I do. And I come and I just... I come under the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I come under him. And anything that I do or give or, or sacrifice in response to what God has done is because I trust in what he's already done for me. So as we apply 1 Kings 8, what do we learn? Well, for starters, we learn that it's about Jesus Christ, not us. So who is the temple? Jesus Christ is the temple. In him we worship God. In him we know God. In him we can dwell with God. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. He is the full payment for my sin. He was the one that took my place. And Jesus Christ is the priest. I come to God not on my own merit. I come to God through Jesus Christ, and He intercedes, and He mediates for me. Now, I want you to know that the New Testament identifies that we are the temple, we are a holy priesthood, and we are called to be living sacrifices. So where does that go? Well, guess what? The only way that I am a temple of the living God is if Jesus Christ, the true temple, dwells within me. And the only way that I could ever be a holy priesthood is if Jesus Christ dwells within me. And the only way that I could ever be a living sacrifice for God is if Jesus Christ dwells within me. Do you see it? That Jesus is the focal point of everything. He is the the one to whom belongs all glory because it's all in Him and because of Him and for Him and of Him. And at the end, He gets the glory and we get the joy. And so we learn from this that that in the end, it's it's about God, it's about His work. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's an incredible opportunity. Now I want you to notice as the passage concludes in, in 1 Kings 8, I want you to notice that after these 14 days of festival, it says in verse 66, On the following day, Solomon sent the people away. They blessed the king and then went home Joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. I want you to notice that it does not say that they went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things that they had done. Remember, it's all the Israelites, the 12 tribes spread out through all kinds of places, other places that used to be other nations. They're spread out. And and here they have come from the north and the south and the east and the west and they brought their sacrifice and they've come. And and you'd think that after all the thousands that were sacrificed in honor of God and the dedication of the temple, they would say, wow, look at all the the good things we have done. It doesn't say that. It says, look at all the good things that God has done. Now I know that I probably don't need to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to draw a direct application to the season of life that our church is in with this building campaign. And I'm going to say to you that in two weeks' time, on November 6th, when we come back into this place to worship the Lord and celebrate Him, and we hear the number that is given of how much money has come from north and south and east and west, and we have gathered all those pledge cards, and somebody tells us what we've arrived at, we will not go home that day patting ourselves on the back and saying, look at all the good things that we did. But rather we will say, man, look at all the good things that God has done. Amen? Amen. That's the way it's got to be. We get the joy. He gets the glory. That's the way it works. Creature and creator, redeemer and saved ones. That's the way the Lord wants it to be. I want to conclude um, this morning just with a, a passage in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Peter 2. So it's listed in your green insert there. And I, I just want to remind you of this scripture because I believe that verses 4 and 5 is, is a reflection of 1 Kings 8 in a New Testament way, where Peter says that we come to him the living stone and we also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And so that's the consecration of our lives that we see in 1 Kings 8. That's the the, the living of a sacrificial life for the glory of God. But I want to go back to verse 1 and, and show you what Peter says about the heart preparation of that. And he says this, he says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He lists five things. And just as... As virtue and as other things can prepare the heart for the greater work of God and the consecrating of our lives, there can be poison in our hearts that come from other things that will not prepare the heart for the coming of God. And and these are things like malice, when you have bitterness in your heart towards someone else for some reason, and deceit, when you are somehow trying to pull the wool over somebody else's eyes. Or hypocrisy, the idea that you are trying to present an image that's not authentic to someone else. Or the idea of envy, this coveting of, of what somebody else has or is, is able to give, or whatever it might be, or slander. This, this thing that begins in the heart and out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks and begins to speak down on someone else. And and Peter says, if these things are feeding your soul, it will be poison to you. But instead, you should get rid of these things and instead crave pure spiritual milk so that you could grow up in your salvation. Now, how do you create a craving? How do you create an appetite? How do you create that appetite and hunger for God? Well, you start feeding it. you start tasting it you've tasted that the lord is good he said well just keep on feeding on god just keep on talking with each other and blessing each other keep on claiming the promises of god keep on worshiping and and slowly god is gonna minister to you and you will find your life becomes more and more the consecrated life that god wants you and i to be and as the worship team comes now um let us, let us think on this last song about how very simple life can be. That when we get rid of the things that are vices to our souls, poison, and when we instead crave pure spiritual milk. When we, we come next week with our pledge cards, for example, we're not thinking about anybody else. We're just thinking, Lord, as a sacrifice of praise, I offer you this because you've blessed and I want to be a blessing. And whatever it is this week that God leads you to, that you would have done the inventory of life that will be required so that you can respond to God in faith. Amen.
2: We've we've lost a lot of our hopes. Um, Those wonderful trips to Hawaii when you're older just haven't materialized. A lot of our dreams, a lot of the things we talked about when we were younger are gone. And we're not feeling bad about it. At all. In fact, the most amazing thing is as we sit there and we talk, Marie and I, about some of our losses, because that's what we have to talk about and face it, as well as some of our joys, is how good God is and how much he loves us. And it's an immense and an overwhelming feeling. It's a journey that's worth all the sacrifice that anybody could make. And as the pastor preached, what he said was actually logically true. It's the normal way life unfolds. As we get older, we discover... His love, not our love, oh God. As younger people, as older people, we wonder what love really is. We wonder whether or not you really love us and we're gonna get to heaven or not sometimes even. We have all sorts of questions. We have sometimes our own struggles and doubts But we forget to look into your eyes at times like that and allow you to say, I love you, I'll be with you, I'll guide you, I'll bless you, I'll lead you. Oh God, may our hearts, when your voice says that, say, Amen. You lead, we'll follow, and we'll bless you. In Jesus' name, Amen.